Thank you, Lord, for the compassion and the forgiveness. We thank you for the hope. We thank you for the, the joy, Lord, that is all found in Jesus. As I invite Alexander up, let's just extend the hand to him. Just let's pray for him. He's going to bring the word this morning. Let's just stay present in this moment. Let's just pray for our friend. Lord, we just thank you for the word that is going to be spoken this morning. We want to see Jesus, Lord, clearly. Let your words fill Alexander's heart, mind, and mouth as he preaches, as he teaches, as he ministers. We thank you, Lord, for your presence. We thank you, Lord, that freedom is here. Freedom is here. And his name is Jesus. Thank you, music team. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Greg, for hosting and the team for, for leading us in worship. Well, it's good to see you all again, and it's good to, at least from my, from my part, it's a privilege to be able to share again God's Word with you. Um, as Greg said, when we started, this is Palm Sunday. And it's the last in church tradition called Holy Week that leads to Thursday night when Jesus shared the Passover meal with his apostles and then his agony in Gethsemane and Friday nine o'clock was nailed to the cross. And Sunday morning, next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. So we remember the crucified King um, but this morning, and Janine is uh, doing the PowerPoint for us, I have a PowerPoint again, and we are talking about the gospel of the kingdom. This is the theme that we have been teaching on, and we will continue to teach um, and spell out all the implications of the gospel of the kingdom. The key text that I've been using is from Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 and I've been emphasizing the fact that this this word gospel in English is, does not refer to African American gospel music <laughs> it includes that but the word gospel is the Greek evangelion which was a technical word used in the Greco-Roman Empire for the emperors and the Caesars to announce the good news of the king. When C Julius Caesar was born, when he was coronated and became emperor, and his, his victories over the Germanic tribes, the barbarians, and um, it was the good news that they spread throughout Pax Romana, the Greco-Roman Empire of the emperor. The first followers of Jesus took that word and filled it with Messianic meaning and they put it back into secular usage referring to another and a greater king who is the emperor of all emperors, the lord of all lords, the king of all kings, and that's Jesus. And they spoke about his birth, his anointing of the Holy Spirit at his baptism with John, his ministry of signs and wonders and miracles culminating in his death and in his resurrection. And Isaiah, who prophesied 700 years before Christ, has this beautiful phrase, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the evangelion, that's the word that's used, the gospel, who proclaim shalom, God's holistic well-being and order and peace that defeats disorder and chaos, who brings the evangelion of salvation, 
And the message, the gospel of the kingdom is your God reigns. God is king and he's becoming king in and through Jesus. So on the next slide, I just will illustrate what I'm going to say this morning in terms of Jesus' fulfillment of the kingdom. I'll illustrate it through a story from ancient Israel. So when God brought Israel out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, through the exodus, through the, the wilderness wanderings and testings, into the promised land, God gave land, the land to Israel by dividing it up into the 12 tribes, then into the clans, and then into each family. And each family and each clan received a piece of land in the promised land as a trust from God. In other words, it is God's land promised to Israel and God apportions it to all the families. And so if a portion of land was held in the Fenter family, the Fenter family, if you are not aware, are a very proud, respectable family. There are about 100,000 of us in South Africa. But um, the, the land was held in the name of the family under God as trust to be accountable to God because it's ultimately God's land. But what used to happen is that when people ran into debt and they couldn't pay their debt, then if it reached the point where they were unable to repay their debt to someone, that person would come onto your piece of land would take the title deeds from you and seal them up, as it were, stick them in his pocket, and he would become a usurper, uh, um, a master on your piece of land, and you'd have to work for that, that, that master to pay off your debt. In other words, you would become a slave on your own piece of land in order to pay off your debt to the one to whom you owed all the money until you had paid back the debt. Then he would give you back the title deeds and the land would be yours once again and you'd be free from the slavery of this usurper. But in the law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 25, there was the provision of the year of Jubilee that had to do with slaves and land. And every 50th year, and the guys are just working on adjusting the sound. All good, all good. <laughs> every, every 50th year, the Jubilee was 49 years, seven sabbatical years. So the Jewish calendar had six years, and on the seventh was a sabbatical year. Then seven periods of seven sabbatical years reached 49. On the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. Jubilee is a year of freedom where all debts in Israel were cancelled. Literally, all debts were cancelled. Everything was brought back to ground zero. All land was returned to its original owners and in the family name. All slaves were set free from their masters. All Hebrew slaves were set free from their masters. It was the year of Jubilee every 50th year. So if I had run up a debt that I couldn't repay, and I mortgaged out my land, as it were, to the one to whom I owed the debt, and they were a, a, a master on my land, and I worked off my debt by being a slave to him, I had the hope that if I could last for 50 years, <laughs> that one day, the day is coming, in the year of Jubilee, when I will be free and my land will be given back to me and my debt will be paid, will be cancelled, basically. However, there was a provision. So if you read Leviticus 25, in the middle of Leviticus 25, there are a couple of verses that have to do with what is called the Redeemer kinsman. And that is the story or the provision in the law of Jubilee that said that actually... You don't have to wait for the end. You don't have to hang on and be a slave right through to the end when the end comes. Because your closest relative is obliged to come 
and to bail you out of trouble. Your closest relative, who is called a redeemer, kinsman. So the kinsman is the person who is your close relative, my brother, my uncle, whoever. They are a redeemer in the sense, the word redemption comes from the language of slavery in the ancient world. So if I was a slave, a person would pay my ransom to set me free, and that would be called redemption. I would be redeemed out of slavery into freedom by the paying of a ransom. And so my nearest kinsman, redeemer, would be obliged to come and to negotiate with, well, not negotiate, but to come to this, this oppressor on my piece of land and say, how much does my brother or my cousin or my, my nephew owe you? And it's this is the full amount plus interest. <laughs> and he says, okay, here is the full amount. I'll pay the debt in order for my brother to be free because of the dignity of our name. The integrity of our family name is at stake by one of our members being a slave. We all need to be free because that is the nature of the Fenter family. <laughs> we have dignity and respect. And for one of the members of our family being enslaved because of the debt that they could not repay is a crying shame and an indignity upon the family. And so they would pay the debt, take, then take back the title deeds, break open the seals and hand the title deeds back to the rightful owner. But sometimes in ancient Israel, the usurper did not leave the land, although the debt was paid. And when that happened, they remained a usurper oppressor, an illegitimate master on a piece of land for which the debt had already been paid and cancelled. Then that redeemer kinsman would go back and they would, they would rustle up all the whole extended family. They would get all the brothers, uncles, aunties, granddads and great-grandfathers. And they would come with their traditional weapons, the nobkiri and the panga. <laughs> this sounds like deep Zulu tradition. And then they would forcefully evict the usurper from the piece of land. They would return with all the family and forcefully because the debt had been legally paid. Now on the next slide, thank you Janine for helping us and serving us. What the story that I've told you is represented here and is a summary of Jewish history, the Jewish worldview, which was Jesus' kingdom worldview. So once again, I showed this slide or diagram last Sunday. But if you, if you were not here last Sunday, just working from the left, God created all things good. And he gave the earth to human beings in trust to rule and reign over the earth. The earth is our piece of land. Because we made in God's image... And we carry his name. If my people are called by my name. And the earth belongs to us under God. To whom we are accountable for how we steward the earth. And look after the earth. But Adam and Eve ran up a debt. They committed sin and rebelled against God. And gave into Satan. And they gave away their God-given authority through sin and death to the evil one, and human beings became slaves on their own plot of land. We became slaves to sin, sickness, demons, death, pain, poverty, injustice, war, violence, sexism, racism, um, classism, and all the evil that hell vomits out on earth. We are enslaved. The, uh, John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you commit sin, you're a slave of sin. Jesus spoke a lot about slavery and redemption. So human beings are slaves on their own plot of land that God gave them. And the hope of the Old Testament, the Old Testament promise. So we live in this present evil age, which is 
Paul's phrase in Galatians chapter 1, this age is a present evil age. But the hope of the Old Testament promise is that one day the year of Jubilee will come. One day God will come and he will settle all debts, free all slaves, and return the land to its rightful owner. And will judge and defeat the usurper, the illegitimate slave master who rules and controls because of their evil's deception of the human heart and our willful choice of sin and running up a debt against God. So that's the hope of the future ages when the end comes. The red cross is the end at the consummation of the end end of the age. But the provision in the year of Jubilee law is that our nearest Redeemer kinsman is obliged to come and bail us out of trouble. And who's our closest kinsman redeemer? We are made in God's image, and the Father's Son, Jesus, is our elder brother. And our elder brother is our redeemer kinsman who comes to pay the debt that we cannot pay. And to cancel our debt... And to take back the title deeds from the usurper, the devil, break open the seals, and give back the ownership of earth to its rightful owners. That's born again, new Adams and new Eves in a new creation. Free from the slavery to sin, sickness, demons, death, pain, poverty, injustice, and all the policy of the government of Satan. We live under a government in South Africa that has particular policies. We came out from under a government in apartheid, the nationalist government, that had particular policies. God's government, in and through King Jesus, has particular policies that are diametrically opposed to the ANC policies. Some are okay, some are not okay, some are straight outright wrong. And that are deeply oppressive and is destroying. That's besides the corruption in our country. So this diagram then shows this amazing mystery that the future enters into history and is broken into history 2,000 years ago where our, our kinsman redeemer came, Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago to bring the kingdom and actually inaugurate the kingdom by canceling our debt and setting us free and restoring our dignity and the dignity of God's family name. Back to the born again, those who believe are set free and we now rule and reign under Christ in new creation over the new heavens and the new earth that has already begun in this present old age. And so we live in the time of fulfillment between Old Testament promise and the future consummation. We live now in the fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom in Jesus where we are already in principle and power set free. But this usurper who snatched the title deeds, (laughs) stuck them in his pocket because of Adam and Eve's sin, is a deceiver, and although the price has been legally paid through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, all has been settled by Jesus on our behalf and for us. But this Satan, Hasatan, the opposer, is a deceiver and a stubborn uh, uh, autocrat and remains on planet Earth, and remains ruling and, and oppressing people, enslaving them to sin and sickness, although the price has been paid. So he, since the cross and the resurrection, Satan is illegally hanging around. He has no legal basis anymore to be here. He is illegally hanging around here. <laughs> and we live now in this strange mystery of an overlap between the jubilee has come but has not yet fully come 
I've been redeemed and the debt has been cancelled and I'm set free. But I'm yet not fully free because evil is still here doing its work. This is fulfillment without consummation. And we await the consummation of the kingdom. So Jesus, our nearest Redeemer kinsman, paid the price on the cross through his shed blood, was buried, rose again to vindicate the reality and the truth of all that he did, and then ascended into heavens and John's gospel, chapter four and chapter five and, and six, has the vision of the Lamb of God coming fresh from slaughter. You know, John's vision is of the one ancient of days sitting on the throne, and in his right hand there is a scroll that is sealed. And all the angelic beings are saying, Who is worthy to go up to him who sits on the throne and take the scroll and break open the seals? And then no one was found worthy. So John the Apostle is having this vision, starts crying. I love John. He's not a South African male. He's a different kind of male. He's easily able to cry. He cries that no one was found worthy. And then an angel says, don't cry. It's okay. Look up. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah is found worthy. And when he opens his eyes through his tearful eyes, he looks and he sees a lamb fresh from the slaughter. And then he rubs his eyes because he's been crying just to get proper focus. And he's looking for a lion. You know something, dear friends? We love the lion part. But we don't talk about the lamb part. You know that in the book of Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah is only used once. And that's in Revelation chapter 5. The lamb of God, the lamb in the book of Revelation is used 21 times. 21 verses 1. And we which is not wrong. But the whole theology of the lamb is of silence. He was led like a lamb, silent to the slaughter. And he paid the price for us. And we need to learn silence. We need to learn that God's power is made perfect in human weakness. We need to learn that when we follow the Lamb, in the suffering of the Lamb, we actually, by the Holy Spirit, experience the lion power. But still, I'm going down a road that I don't need to go. Just to say that Jesus, the lion lamb, was found worthy because of his death and resurrection, having paid the price, and he goes up to the one on the who sits on the throne, takes the scroll and breaks open the seals. And basically, in Revelation, it's the unwinding of human history to culminate in his second coming. But his first step is to give back to human beings the title deeds of planet Earth. Oh, the ownership and the right to rule and reign with King Jesus. He rules from the heavens, because he sat down on the right hand of the Father and receives the fullness of power, but that kingship, his rulership from the heavens is expressed on earth in and through his body, the church. And we are the instrument of his kingship on earth. We are the community of the kingdom and the king. Advancing his government and the policy of King Jesus to the ends of the earth. In contrast to all human governments with all their policies. That cause a lot of pain. So the pain in Israel today, because of the, of the right-wing religious Zionists who want to reform the judiciary that will allow a dictatorship to come into being, is because of human policies that want power and grasp power. And I don't need to talk about Netanyahu, or Ramaphosa, or Biden, or whoever, but we're in serious trouble in this world because people are all after power. They all want to be lions,
But no one wants to be a lamb in order to be the lion. And there's only one who became a lamb who then was given the lionship to rule and to reign, and that is Jesus. And we follow the lamb. We follow the lamb. So Jesus is coming back with all his relatives, all our relatives, one day with nobkiris and a few other traditional weapons. And he will forcefully evict Hasatan from the earth. He will come back at his second coming, which he spoke about a lot when he was on earth, that he will return. And then he will fully and finally bring an end to evil in all its forms. And he will evict Satan and put him in the lake of fire. And then ultimately, the jubilee of all jubilees will be on earth. So that is on the next slide. That is just the picture illustration of what it means, the gospel of the kingdom in one story. But just let me make a few more comments in terms of Jesus fulfilling the kingdom. So Jesus' mission when he came 2,000 years ago, his message and his ministry was all about the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the kingdom. He explained and taught the kingdom. He demonstrated or enacted the kingdom through signs and wonders. And he inaugurated the kingdom in Israel at that time. And all of his followers who put their faith into Jesus and follow him and become his, his disciples become the community of the kingdom that is God's instrument of his rule and reign in the world today. The church, the followers of Jesus. And the key text in the Gospel of Mark, this is Mark's like generic announcement of what Jesus preached wherever he went. Wherever Jesus went for three and a half years to Israel, he basically said this. The, God, um, the time has come. In other words, the Hebrew prophets are being fulfilled and have reached their, their culmination. The time is now. In fact, how many of you have been to Hollywood in USA? I was there in 1982. I worked with John Wimber for eight months, and we used to go to, now and again to Hollywood Boulevard to see. I remember seeing an old hippie with, with, with two you know, wooden boards hung around his neck. And on... The front, it said, the end has come. It's the end of the world. And when you walk past on the back, you read, turn or burn. <laughs> Jesus' message in Jewish ears would have been, it's the end of the world. It's the end. The time has come. It's the climax of Israel's history. Israel's destiny has come upon us. It's the end. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come near you. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's rule and reign is breaking through, bringing an end to the rule and reign of evil, and has come close to free you from your sin, your sickness, your demons, your death. And how do you experience the kingdom? Repent and believe. That was his regular phrase. Repent is metanoia, which is meta is to change, and noia is your mind. Change your thinking, or else you will not see what God is doing. Change your mindset, because your old mindset will prevent you from seeing the kingdom. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, to see from God's point of view, you will not only you will not be able to enter the kingdom, you will not be able to see the kingdom, let alone enter the kingdom. You, you need a fundamental shift and change of mind. You need to see with new eyes that God is present here among us on the march, becoming king and defeating evil in your life and in the lives of people around him. So open up your mind, change your thinking, Turn to God and to believe, pistiu, is essentially to entrust yourself to God's wildest possibilities. With God, all things are possible. With human beings, many things are not possible. But with God, all things are possible. So Emily, that word that you shared was, was right on from the Lord.
through the hardship and the struggle of whatever we've been going through, we should not be intimidated into withdrawal and unbelief, but we should push in because the kingdom of God has come and is coming and will come with power. And so Jesus' basic message was, right now, as I speak to you, it's your moment of destiny. It's the end of the world for you. It's the end of your life of sin, brokenness, and pain. It's the beginning of the year of Jubilee for you. If you just open up your mind, change your thinking, and trust what God can do, because God is right here within reach. The kingdom is at hand. It's within reach. It's available to everyone right now, to those who repent and turn to God and believe what He's doing and all of His wildest possibilities. Because with God, nothing is impossible. That was the message that Jesus preached wherever He went. In the next room, at least in the next slide, you will see the room. But there was an elephant in the room. And of course, Jesus had no elephants in Israel, but there was a metaphorical Israel, um, a metaphorical elephant in the room of Israel. Because why was Jesus not overthrowing the Romans and driving out the oppressor and establishing the political, economic, and military kingdom in Jerusalem? That was the disconnect, the clash of expectations between the, the dominant Jewish expectation of his day that the Messiah, Mashiach, the king, would come and drive out God's enemies, Israel's enemies, which are God's enemies, drive them out and establish the kingdom and rule and reign and bring shalom. But Jesus was not doing that. <laughs> Jesus was going around forgiving people's sins. Ave gritum sanctum blessum forgivum. That's the old Catholic Jesus version. You heal, pick up your bed and walk. Demons come out, binding up the brokenhearted, preaching hope for the poor, the oppressed, those who are marginalized in society. But there is no evidence that he was planning to actually drive out the Romans. In fact, if anything, you know what Jesus said? Some zealots who were Jewish liberation fighters joined Jesus' community. He said to Simon Zelotes, come and follow me. He was a right-wing Jewish Zionist nationalist. They had a sikari, a dagger in their, in their belt, where they, were, they would happily use it in the name of holy war theology from the book of Joshua and Judges and cut the throat of a Roman soldier and do God a favor by sending the Roman soldier to hell. The zealots believed in violence as a means to bringing the kingdom. And did Jesus teach violence to bring the kingdom? You know what Jesus said? He said, if a man asks you to carry his load for one mile, I say to you, carry it for what Jesus was referring to is Roman soldiers in the occupation were allowed under the agreement between the Roman governor and the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, to put a limit on how much the Roman soldiers could exploit the local population, the Jews. And because the Roman soldiers had a big, heavy pack, and they would inspan Jews who would be walking past and they'd say, hey, carry my pack. And in the heat of the day, it gets very hot if you've been to Israel, they could carry it on and on and on until the guy just collapses. And then he'd get another Jew to carry his pack. But they would limit it only to one mile by agreement between Pontius Pilatus and the Jewish Sanhedrin. Jesus teaches his disciples. He said, if they ask you to carry the pack, for one mile, I say to you, carry it for? Jesus would have been seen by the zealots as a collaborator and a soft prime minister. Oh, he's a soft, soft king. 
We need to have strong leadership and beat up the Palestinians, beat up the opposition. We need to show ourselves strong or else they take advantage of you. Jesus taught his community very differently. You're the community of the kingdom. You're people of love, of nonviolence. And so the elephant in the room was Jesus was not overthrowing the Romans, not establishing the kingdom in Jerusalem. His kingdom was a different kind of kingdom. So Jesus therefore explained on the next slide. Jesus had PowerPoints as well. He used this slide. Um, on the next slide, he explains the mystery of the kingdom. So Jesus taught what is called the mystery of the kingdom of God through parables. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 11. Basically, if you read all the parables of Jesus, he explained the kingdom of God as a mystery. Because to the Jewish mind, they were baffled. They were very happy with his lovely stories of the kingdom, with his healings and miracles. They were, they were ah, up to 10,000 people followed Jesus at any given time because he was a wonder worker. But when he explained the mystery of the kingdom, he revealed what he said to his disciples, but he told it in stories to the people. So just very briefly, if you look at all the parables, all they, they start with the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so Jesus tells the story of the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows wheat in the field, but the weeds spring up. And then the laborers come and say, should we pull out the weeds? And he says, no, leave the weeds to grow side by side with the wheat. And at the harvest, when the harvest comes, we will then separate the wheat and the weeds. And we will burn the weeds in hell and receive the wheat into the eternal kingdom. So parable of the parable simply says this. The kingdom of God is a mystery because... It has come into this age, and it is working in this age without putting an end to this age. It has broken into this age and is working in this age, alongside this age, without ending this age. And good and evil are side by side. We're working for the King Jesus and His kingdom, and the, the people who follow Satan are doing his will on earth as it is in hell. While we are doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. It is power against power. So all the parables of the kingdom illustrate the fact that the kingdom is a mystery that, that, that the Jews of his day did not expect. Because they all expected one coming of the king and not a two-part coming. Whereas Jesus is teaching a two-part coming. I'm coming first as the Lamb to suffer the sins of Israel, because my name is Yeshua, Yahweh saves. For He will save His people from their sins. I will be the atoning Passover sacrifice for the sins of Israel and lead a new exodus into the eternal kingdom of God. That will lead to my rulership and reign, and I'll return as the lion. And when that day comes, you don't want to be around or on the wrong end of the lion. That's the second coming of Jesus. And the mystery of the overlapping of two ages, where we have the future, present, working, breaking in, transforming, healing, forgiving, changing, while this present evil age is still ongoing, is a mystery to the mind, the Jewish mind. They just, they said, how can this be? Jesus saw two phases and he tried to teach that and explain it. And it's called the already of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom. So just to say, dear friends, that the kingdom of God has come in principle and power in Jesus and it will come again in, in fullness and finality when he returns. And we live in the tension between the presence of the kingdom in principle, but in power, and the consummation of the kingdom in fullness and finality. That is the tension in which we live today. 
and it's called eschatological tension. This word eschatology, don't be nervous of a few theological words, but the word eschaton in Greek is the end. Jesus said, I am the beginning and the? In the Greek, I am the eschaton. I am God's end. When you see me, you see the end. <laughs> That's why when the demons saw Jesus, they saw their end and they screamed in fear. Yeah. Yeah, come on. They said, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And the demon said, have you come to torment us before our? Because when they saw Jesus, they saw the eschaton, the end. And so eschatology is the study of the end times. So we live in eschatological tension because the end has come. And I'm already living the new beginning of new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. But I'm still in this body that's growing old. And I still receive prayer for healing. And I'm not healed sometimes. I know all of you guys are healed every time anyone prays for you. But for me, I'm a bit more realistic. We tend, the human nature does not like tension. Human nature cannot live in opposing tensions. Human nature wants resolution. Either kingdom now or kingdom not yet. And theology... Church leaders, church practice always tends towards kingdom now or kingdom not yet. But to remain in the radical middle of both now and not yet is not natural to fallen human nature. And so just be careful if we look on a spectrum from extreme kingdom now, which I would call word of faith movement. Have you heard of the word of faith movement? Yeah. Because we are healed through his stripes, you are already healed 2,000 years ago. All you need to do is name it, claim it, and frame it. And if it doesn't work, jump on it. It's a presumptuous triumphalism of kingdom now theology. And I don't have time to go into explaining kingdom now theologies and all their nuances on a spectrum of extreme kingdom now to extreme kingdom not yet. And the more we struggle and suffer in this age, the temptation is to do what Emily prophesied, is to actually give up hope and give in and passively accept the not yet of the kingdom. And the reality that the kingdom has not yet fully come and will only come at the end does not mean we just lie down and passively give up. And whatever will be, will be. And some golden daybreak, Jesus will come. And until then, you just hang on with what? With your, with your knuckles praying for the end to come. No, no, no. A correct understanding of the not yet of the kingdom is simply this. That as I've got it um, at the, as, on the next slide, as I've got on the next slide, Satan has been defeated. Satan is being defeated, and Satan will be defeated. And therefore, we are resilient in hope while being hard-nosed realists. You know that the Jewish people, if you've been to Israel even today, the Jews are not pie-in-the-sky, super-spiritual people. They are very down-to-earth, hard-nosed realists, yet full of tikva, hope, resilient hope of God's covenant with Israel and the coming of the king. And so the Jews have a phrase, the rabbis have a phrase from the Talmud, they say this, when you pray, pray as if everything depends on God, but when you work, work as if everything depends on you. It goes, that's not logical to the Western mind. But you know, Jews are able to hold contradictory truths in tension because they are both true at the same time. You trust God fully and completely, but you take full responsibility and you face reality for what it is. And you don't escape into a super spiritualism of name it, claim it, and frame it.
And they're all different reactions either way. So the mainline churches, the traditional churches tend towards kingdom not yet, where we just got to hold on. It all depends on you and just be faithful right to the end. And the charismatic churches, not maniac churches, tend towards Pentecostalism and charismatic churches tend towards kingdom now theology that borders on presumption and engineering and manipulating and hyping to make something happen. Come on now! Come on now! Let's roll! Because the kingdom has come Superman! As opposed to our gracious Heavenly Father, if it be thy will, in thy mercy, wilt thou not spare thy servants and help us to hang on until the end? Both extremes, kingdom not yet, kingdom now. So you can see there's a lot to say about this because we don't know and understand this tension of the already and the not yet. And if you don't, you often find yourself pulled towards one pole, either the one or the other. You lose hope or you become presumptuous and you demand and command and declare. And if it doesn't happen, then, then there's a problem here. And often the problem is people say, it's your lack of faith. See, if you really believed it would happen, nonsense. I better stop right there. Let me finish off with this slide by just mentioning the four missional dimensions of the kingdom. The powers of the coming age have broken into this world in Jesus. And the coming of the kingdom leads to power encounter, healing signs and wonders and miracles. It leads to personal transformation, which is spirituality. And then it leads to social engagement, which is engagement with the poor, justice, ecology, which ends up in world mission. Eschaton, the end. The end will come. Jesus said this. In, John, in Matthew chapter 24, when his apostles asked him, they said, Jesus, when will the end come? What will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the world? And you know what Jesus' answer was after giving the signs of the time in verse 14? So who can picture in their minds Matthew 24 in your Bible from verse 1, when will the end come, da -da -da -da, going down to verse 14? Who can, who can quote verse 14? Jesus says this, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached as a witness to all the world, to all nations, and then the eschaton will come. When will Jesus return? When the church has obeyed the Great Commission. That's when the end will come. So, last slide. Just put in, put in another way, the same thing. So if you start from the cross at the bottom, the coming of the kingdom, the powers of the coming age break through into history in Jesus, his death and resurrection, and that is first and foremost power encounter. And the greatest healing and miracle is when you're born again with eternal life and you enter the kingdom. Power encounter, signs and wonders, my book, Doing Healing, leads to personal transformation. We are changed from inside out because we are born again. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, spiritual formation. I focused on that, discipleship in doing spirituality. And then that leads to social transformation. From the coming of the kingdom with power, that starts changing us from inside out through character formation to become like Christ overflows into engagement in society to change society for God's sake. And it's not just preaching the gospel, but it's holistic social engagement in terms of the poor and the broken, etc. In my book, Doing Reconciliation. So I have systematically written four books on the four implications of the kingdom. 
the missional dimensions or implications of the kingdom. And that then leads to world missions or church planting. The best, John Wimber said, the best way to evangelize is to plant a church. And the best way to plant a church is to evangelize. And to multiply churches to the ends of the earth in obedience to the Great Commission so that the eschaton will come. Jesus placed one condition on his second coming. When they asked him later, they said, what will be the day and the hour? He said, the Son of Man doesn't even know the day and the hour of his coming. That's in the Father's hands. But for you, receive power to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth so that the end may come. That's the balance. That's the focus. So, dear friends, the problem of selective obedience, my last point. Just to say that some churches like to be catch the fire, hallelujah, signs and wonders churches. And, and, then, and then what happens is we neglect personal spirituality of character formation so that you clean up your life and you stop sinning and you become like Jesus. And we ignore engagement of the world because it's social gospel. That's politics. We don't go there. Only the mainline churches go there. But I know this church is different. You guys are deeply engaged in social transformation. So we don't have the privilege of selective obedience. This is a package deal. All four implications of the kingdom define church. We, Freedom House, are defined by the signs and wonders of the kingdom, doing the spirit stuff. We're defined by discipleship, spiritual formation. We're defined by social engagement for the world's sake. And we're defined by a world vision to take the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Ryan and Mel are in Ladysmith, but the connections and the vision is growing to go everywhere with the gospel of the kingdom. Let's stand. So once again, folk, let's just receive the presence and the power of the king and his kingdom <laughs> upon our bodies, our minds, our emotions, on our finances, on our children on our workplace, wherever you have need, wherever you're struggling, wherever the devil's trying to, to beat up on you, let the kingdom come. Let the kingdom come with power in the name of Jesus. Lord, pour out your spirit. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit. Let your kingdom come with power. Heal and transform. Set free. It's the Jubilee. The Jubilee is here. The year of your freedom. In the name of Jesus. Come Lord. Come Lord. Thank you Father. Thank you Father.